Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We're publishing this podcast on the last day of the 2021 financial year, so many of you will be listening in a new financial year, which is often a really good time to think about your investment strategy, your portfolio, your income and tax position, and many of you will be doing it because you want to put in a tax return now and get some money back pretty soon. And it's a worthwhile exercise to ensure that you're on track and making tra- making strides uh, for a better year ahead. Today, I'm joined by Paul Rickard from Switzer, who's going to talk to you and talk to us about how you can plan for the year ahead, and especially any new super and tax changes you might like to think about taking advantage of, because they do tend to come around on the 1st of July. Paul, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Gemma. Great to be here. So, Paul, what would you suggest, and I should point out to people who don't know you, you've been doing this for literally decades, and I won't mention which one, but you were instrumental in setting up one of the larger online broking firms in Australia. So you've got so much experience in this area. What would you suggest is the first thing for people to consider at the beginning of the financial year? Yeah, thanks, Gemma. I'm feeling that um, some of my hair either got grey or disappeared when you said that. Um, So it's great there's a podcast and people can't see the lack of it, I guess. Uh, so, look, I think um, the start of the financial year is a really a good time just to have a reset, in other words, just to think about your portfolio and, and what you're trying to achieve financially in the coming 12 you know, months and possibly further on. It, it doesn't have to be the start of financial year. You can do this any time, but I think sometimes it's just good to, you know, we need the discipline of, of an end and the start and finish and... and uh, just at the 30th of June, as, as we approach that and we're in that period, let's reset and think about the next 12 months. And I guess the first thing to do if you have an investment portfolio is really, and that can include superannuation as part of that too, uh, is really to, the way, at least the way I approach it is very much from a sort of a top-down basis first. That is that I look at my overall asset allocation, in other words, how much have I got invested in, say, for example, domestic shares, how much in international shares, uh, how much I might have in sort of fixed interest type securities and possibly, you know, in in property. Uh, And just to make sure that the balance in an overall sense uh, is consistent with this type of risk that I want to take and my um, return expectations. So I guess that's the first thing to do is to to, take a really quite a helicopter view uh, and, and see whether that's right. And what's, uh, I guess, important to realise is that although you, you might start with a position or you might have started with a position some years ago, because of the way markets move, um, those balances will change uh, over time. And so it's important to get the balance right. And typically, you know, we divide assets into, you know, both what we call growth assets and, uh, and income-based assets. And, and growth assets are those that are expected where most of the gain is expected to come from an increase in, in the price of the assets. So for example, shares and property and international shares are typically growth assets. And so-called income or defensive assets are those where most of the return is gonna come through income. So for example, things like uh, investments in cash and term deposits and fixed interest securities bonds uh, they're typically sort of the income style assets. And getting that balance right is really sort of comes back to 
you know, the, the style of risk and reward we want to take. So that, that's the first thing I look to do, Gemma, at the start of the year, You're making sure from, from a high level the asset allocation is, is, is right. That's a really interesting one. Um, and I've heard some incredible examples of the scenarios people find themselves in when they've been investing for a really long time. The Probably the best one I heard was a guy who uh, wanted to set up investment portfolios for both of his kids. And so he bought one child CSL shares back in the 90s and he bought another child Telstra shares two years right. later. <laughs> and, uh, and those kids ended up with completely different amounts of money at the end, which was unintentional. I remember him saying to me, I had to take out all this money out of other assets to top up the kid who got the Telstra shares. Uh, which yeah. is what happens when you let things run, right? It, it does. And, and so that's why it's worth doing that. And, there's, and I guess there's, there's a second part. So just keeping sort of this helicopter view, the first thing is to get the the mix right into the into the various assets. It's then when you sort of then say, okay, well, this is now looking at my say share portfolio. Um, have I got the right sort of mix in 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 the share portfolio to take it forward? And there, there are different ways you can approach this. And, and one of the ways again is to look at the uh, sort of the, a high level asset allocation between the different sort of share categories. So you mentioned sort of CSL and Telstra and and uh, great examples of you know, companies that have gone from you know, CSL uh, under $10 to $300 and Telstra's sort of gone from $7 to probably about $3.50 the other way over that same period. You know, the, so has the performance of the different um, categories. So I, I would, within my share, cat, share portfolio, look to sort of get an allocation between, you know, the sort of the 11 sort of basic categories. So the, the categories are things like uh, financials, which is, of course, is, is your major banks, uh, materials companies, which are, you know, companies investing in, in resources and, uh, you know, companies such as BHP or, for that matter, a company like Amcor, which is producing sort of packaging materials, how much is invested in industrial companies, how much is in consumer staples, that's sort of like your Woolworths and your Coles, and try to break it down into that sort of second level of category to then sort of, you know, just make sure that if the positioning I have in, in those sectors is appropriate. So if I've got 100% of my assets in, in, in banks, for example, uh, in, in, and other financial companies, and the market weighting is about 30%, then I'm taking a very big overweight position in financials. I want to make sure that that's actually where I want to be. Now, there could be good reasons why you think that over the long term or the medium to long term, financials are going to be the best performing sector. But you want to make sure that that's the weighting you have is consistent with sort of, you know, the views you've got for the next sort of 12 to months and even longer. The same way that, you know, one of the biggest other sectors has been really important in the last in the market the last couple of years is technology uh, and companies you know for example like Zero and uh, Next DC and potentially Afterpay and, and a number of other companies there uh, investors are still probably underweight those sectors despite that's being where the growth is so that's sort of the second thing is to is to get it down into sort of the um, you know a, a categorization by sector. And then the final part of this sort of top-down approach, which started with the asset class, then looked at the sort of the, the allocations by sector, is then to look at the individual securities and just make sure they're the ones you actually want to hold. And um, you know, in most portfolios, we tend to find that there are things that um, some we've all got the odd 
what I'd describe as, uh, you know, non-performing dog stock. Um, and sometimes it's better just to start the new year and clear those out and uh, and start again with a refreshed portfolio. So it, it said this doesn't have to be done at the start of the year, but it's just a really good time to uh, sit back, take a deep breath, have a look at what you've got, uh, and then make sure it's sort of set for the way that you really want it to be for the coming 12 plus and even longer period. Although that's super helpful and you're right, it's really easy to kind of let the stuff get away from you and you wonder sometimes, how did I end up with this? I do remember when I very first started working, um, a comment about some of the principals in a stockbroking firm was that the guys pretty much owned one of everything and, mm. uh, and the point was made they might as well have just put their money in an index fund. They had such an extraordinary range of assets by the time they'd bought all the different pieces that they'd uh, they'd been buying over the years. So from my years uh, working with financial advisors and so on, the broader principle is you ensure that you've got your strategy right before your asset allocation essentially looking at how much you save or invest if you're pre-retirement, and that can be super young, like in your 20s, or it can be, you know, 60s and thinking about retirement really soon, or how much you need to live off if you're in retirement. So have you got your money uh, allocated to the right structure? Are you saving through superannuation or have you borrowed to invest? Have you got a mortgage? Are you paying it off? How do you think about those sort of bigger structural questions? Yeah, look, I guess um, it's probably a place I should have started a bit. Um, so get, getting the, the strategy and the structure right is, is really important. And I guess, um, you know, for those that are particularly uh, working and, and, and paying off a mortgage and, and facing the dilemmas of, you know, um, how much is going into super and uh, how much should I be paying off on the mortgage and um, what do I do with the, uh, the extra cash flow? So... Um, I think there are sort of some, probably some fairly fundamental things you should try to avoid if you can. Um, and, but th and this is the value of getting advice because it's exactly what a financial planner will, will, will sort of take you back to, to first base and say, well, let's really work out what your goals are. And once we've defined what your goals are, let's look at your, your current uh, financial position and, and how much and, and, your, and any debts you've got. And then thirdly, with that, try to sketch you the right sort of structure or structure your, you know, your financial assets or and financial liabilities so they're best likely to achieve and meet your goals. So um, I think that's exactly what you're alluding to. So that that probably is probably where we should have started. So that that, that that's what a financial planner would do. And and you can, you know, there's no reason why you can't be your own sort of mini financial planner and do exactly the same. Step, step, work out work out your goals. Then look at where how you're currently positioned, and then think about how you might might structure that. That that's the way I would look at it. But I guess coming back to your question, Gemma, there are you know there are there are certain things that you um, that you know sort of some golden rules that you, that you want to follow and others you you don't want. And let me just go through a couple of those um, offhand. Um, first point of view is is that you know typically. Um, any planner who looks at people with a lot of uh, debt, uh, particularly high cost debt, will say to some, will say to the individual, um, you know, you really want to think pretty hard about whether you can continue to afford that. And when it's sort of high cost debt are things like, you know, debt on credit cards, where you could be paying, you know, if, if you continue to revolve the credit facility, you could be paying almost 20%. 
um, a, a planner would look at a way how that could bring up, manage your cash flow or change your budget or whatever it is, change your expenses so that you're not paying you know, really high um, interest costs. And then I guess the second thing is, is that when you've got, if you've got things like a, a home loan, you know, people would look at things like, well, do you have an offset account? Are you get, getting your salary being paid into your offset account? So you're automatically sort of reducing the interest costs on your home loan. And then I think thirdly is the, is, is the balance between, you know, what we call deductible and non-deductible debt. So um, deductible debt is, is something that, uh, where you borrow perhaps for an investment and you get a tax deduction. Uh, and non-deductible debt is, is um, debt, for example, on your home loan that uh, you can't claim as a tax deduction uh, and they might do some work and try to work there. So there's sort of three things you can look at, but, but that will then lead to looking at your portfolio and making sure the portfolio is positioned um, so that you're more likely to meet your ultimate investment objectives. It's a really great summary and if anyone has followed or read any of the major financial influences, I guess they all do tend to have a pretty straightforward set of strategies, which involve exactly what you've said. You get rid of your non-deductible debt, particularly your high cost debt, really quickly. And the goal is to effectively eliminate that. I'm interested in your thoughts because uh, it's outside my sphere. You know, the stuff's come along sort of after the period where I was borrowing to buy very small things. But there's talk about the buy now, pay later sector and the fact that young people don't have credit cards anymore. They use buy now, pay later as an alternative, but it can be quite expensive. I mean, some of these companies are making 20% or more of their revenue from late fees. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, look, that comes back to my point about credit cards, but you're right, a lot of, um, I won't say kids, but young adults don't have credit cards um, and uh, they do, you know, using buy now, pay later services and other effective um, lenders to provide them or to facilitate a purchase. Now, buy now, pay later is, is, is fantastic as long as you pay it back within the four installments, right? Because you're getting, you're not getting charged anything, Um uh, effectively, so um, it's, it's a great way to, to purchase goods. But as soon as you miss that one of those instalments, um, the late fees are pretty prohibitive, uh, and uh, that really changes the you know the whole dynamics of of, uh, of the transaction. So I think you know, like most of these f facilities, they're designed to get you to spend, and that's what the retailer wants. It's what the buy now pay later provider wants. Um, but just, again, just spend in accordance with your budget. So if, if you're buying something, you're paying it off in four instalments, then you've got to make sure you've got the cash flow to support those four instalments. And if you don't, then, you know, I'd say, well, just don't buy it. Um, so it requires a bit of discipline. It, it, it goes down, in many cases, Gemma, to a simpler thing as, as doing a budget. Um, and one of the phrases that um, my uh, co-founder, of the Switzer report, Peter Switzer is very fond of is is sort of the you know the GSTing yourself right because um, what we find with clients when we uh, ask them to do a budget and look at just where they're spending money is that most people can probably save almost ten percent uh, off their budget as soon as they look at sorry ten percent off their expenses as soon as they look at where they're spending it 
uh, and just think about it pretty hard about whether they need to spend it. So it's almost like the GST impact coming back. Um, and uh, it's amazing what you do when you literally look at just um, at some of your discretionary spending, you start to track it. And I'm not playing Mr. Scrooge here, right? I'm just uh, suggesting ways that people can, uh, uh, through a budget, can potentially, um, you know, really, um, you know, improve their cash flow situation quite materially just by tracking and, and just being a little more, uh, uh, having a bit more thought about um, some of the expenses they make. I, have, I imagine many people are feeling a little bit uncomfortable when you mention budgeting. And uh, you know, it's one of those ones, it's like dieting. Like, you know, you should. You know, you should eat a little bit less of this and a little bit less of that. And you know, you should save a little bit more. But as soon as the idea of having to apply some discipline comes around it, it's really rather not. <laughs> it's, it's, um, a it's a funny simpler, one. Simpler, Gemma, because a lot, most of the banks and a lot of the banks with their apps they have these days um, can show you just where you're spending it. Uh, and there are a lot of quite simple budgeting apps out there um, that uh, some are free. Um, so it's a lot easier to keep track of these things. I'm not, and I said, I'm not trying to be a Mr. or Mrs. Scrooge, but um, we all know that the, uh, you know, when we look at how we spend and, you know, I'm guilty as anybody. I have two or three, you know, coffees a day and do I need two or three probably not and if I cut it down to one you know what would I save well I'd save you know five dollars a day that's twenty dollars or twenty five dollars a week you know that's a thousand dollars a year or more than a thousand dollars a year so it's not hard to find you know potential savings but it's just a matter of just staying on top so look spend what you can if you're using an you know a buy now pay later app or something else just make sure that you can pay it back within the four installments. The coffee example is really interesting and other people may have done this analysis or not. Uh, my husband and I were talking about getting a fancy coffee machine, like one of the expensive <laughs> ones. It doesn't have a pod. It's got all the beans and does the grinding for you and all the stuff. And, <laughs> and we're going, oh, they're quite expensive, right? They're not, they're not cheap things to put on your kitchen bench. But when you work out how much you're spending getting coffee around the corner, suddenly they don't seem quite so expensive. We figured we'd pay ours off in about nine months if you did the analysis. We're like, Oh, no, now it's very reasonable. We can definitely go and buy the fancy coffee machine. It's a perfectly legitimate investment now. It's not a, it's not a purchase, it's an investment. <laughs> but on that front, I do think one of the easiest ways to reframe how you think about trying to budget better is if you have a goal or you're motivated to do something more positive with your money. So it's not a sacrifice. You're actually looking to put it towards something of value that's going to grow for you over time. The two main areas people look to grow their wealth are either via superannuation, so for retirement, so that's one of the saving strategies that people use, particularly as they get older and closer to retirement, because it becomes much more relevant suddenly. And then also building a portfolio. And some people choose to borrow to build that portfolio. So they start the portfolio up front and then pay it down over time. And others will build it up with smaller amounts of money. Do you have any thoughts about those different strategies if you're in that accumulation phase? Yeah, look, I think um, and it comes also back to the question about um, your mortgage versus superannuation. <laughs> They're sort of all, all linked a little bit. I think for most people, um, superannuation is the easiest and probably the most uh, tax effective strategy. And, that, and that's why every financial advisor will say, well, look, if you've got surplus cash, see if you can get some more into superannuation. Um, 
Mainly because, uh, A, it's super tax effective. And, of course, in superannuation, the earnings that your superannuation fund makes is are only being taxed at 15%. Whereas if you invest outside superannuation and you pay tax on those earnings at your marginal tax rate, uh, depending on how much you earn, you could be paying as high as 47%. So superannuation is a much more tax effective structure for most people. Uh, and that's why the basic advice is if you can get more money into superannuation. Now there's a downside, of course, that uh, it's locked away um, and you can't touch it. And you know, for most people that's currently 60, but chances are that age will continue to rise. And um, by the time today's 30 year olds are retiring, <laughs> you know, the chance of that age will be 65 or even higher. So that's, that's the downside, but we still encourage most people to get money into superannuation. So that's sort of the, the first statement. There's a really good conundrum about, about, for most people, about if they've got a mortgage and they've got some extra cash flow, um, do they pay their mortgage off first or put the extra money into superannuation? And that's a really interesting argument um, because there's a lot of comfort that people have in paying off their mortgage. And, uh, you know, I think from a family point of view, it's nice to be able to say you've got no debt or very little debt with the bank and so you know you don't have to worry about the, the monthly mortgage and worry about what the bank thinks and, the, and and if interest rates go up but again you know because interest rates are so low um for most people it's still going to be more financially uh, savvy to put money into superannuation than it is to pay off your your mortgage and i'm not that's just a financial perspective not a not a comfort and there are a lot of other good reasons to pay your mortgage off but and the reason for that is that, you know, interest rates on uh, on mortgages are around about uh, between, you know, 2 and 3%. Uh, and really, you know, if you're paying more than, if you've got any current mortgage, although the variable rate's a bit higher, you can, there are opportunities to get that rate down. So, uh, whereas superannuation ret funds are returning about 6 to 7% over the long term. Uh, and although there's a few tax issues to work through there. Superannuation is probably still going to be a better investment over the long term. So that's the second question. And then I think for those who are prepared to take on some more risk, then there's also an opportunity to borrow to invest. I think that's the point that you were coming to, Gemma. And uh, that's a scenario, of course, probably most people are familiar with in terms of you know negative gearing into property. Uh, as an asset class, and so buying the investment property, um, getting that finance from a bank, and essentially being able to use the interest as a tax deduction, uh, and potentially having a, a situation where you end up where you're getting bigger tax deductions um, from both interest and some of the other costs uh, that you're paying, and effectively getting an overall tax deduction on the rest of your um, salary income. And that's a higher risk strategy because um, you've got the risks of the asset, what happens to the uh, performance of the house, or if you buy a share portfolio, do the shares go up over the medium to long term? And you're also paying a reasonably higher cost to borrow the money. So for the people who want to take on more risks, that's also a third strategy. So those sort of three things depend a little bit about comfort, depends on how much risk you want to take probably also where you are in terms of your life journey, because if you're, you know, in your thirties, then, you know, you might say that there's now's you can afford to take more risk because you've got a long time off before you're going to retire. 
uh, and you might look more at sort of borrowing to invest. Whereas if you're in your, you know, in your late 50s and you're potentially, you know, looking at retiring in the next few years, then, you know, this might be the time to get as much money into superannuation and not take on as much risk. So there's no one right or wrong answer to that, but um, it's sort of the three things sort of people will, will and, and, and a planner potentially can, can work with you to, to look at which of those strategies might make the most sense. Really like that summary. Thank you. Um, for anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a really long time, I'm going to say the second, it might even have been the first topic I ever covered was should you pay off your mortgage or invest in super? And the technical team uh, that I used to work with had run the numbers on it. This was three years ago now, maybe three and a half years ago. And even then when rates were much higher, it was far more mathematically beneficial to salary sacrifice into superannuation than it was to pay off your mortgage. Uh, and as rates have fallen, that's become more beneficial. But as you say, just because something's mathematically uh, wise doesn't take into the fact that you may not be able to touch the money for 30 years, that you would like to have the security of owning your own home, the interest rates will go up and all those sorts of things. But the maths are there if you want to go back and find that one. It's a long time ago, but it's there. Um, and then they can talk you through why uh, why they came to that conclusion. I think also your point that none of these are perfect answers and you can use all three strategies if you want. You may have an investment loan and a mortgage and be saving into superannuation at the same time. It's possible. Yeah, no, there's no right or wrong answer. And, and um but I, I could just give you the financial answer. But I, I can understand that, uh, you know, for a lot of families, you know, paying off the mortgage is still the priority because, uh, you know, no one likes to owe money to a bank. That, I'm not saying that. But also there's this stress that goes with the mortgage and you know, what happens if one of the partners loses their job and the family income changes and all those type of things. So, you know, that, there's a lot of comfort factor in being able to say that I've got rid of most of the mortgage, right? And... Um, I'm lucky enough to be in that situation, Gemma, but I do recall what it was like at the time when I was paying it off. So um, while I, financially I, I might say you should do X, um, that's not necessarily the, the best family answer, if I can put it that way. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think for many people, if you are able, you know, if you have an extra $100 a week, uh, putting an extra $30 a week into superannuation and $70 a week toward your mortgage may well be one strategy you could contemplate having a few different uh, investment strategies up your sleeve might be the way to go if you can do it, if you can do it. Because one thing that is terribly difficult for people is you get to retirement and you have no more than the superannuation you accrued during a working life, which for people now is, you know, it's not a full lifetime's earnings um, of superannuation. You know, you wouldn't have been getting super your whole working life. And for women in particular, if you're out of the workforce with children and so on, you get to retirement and you've got a fully paid off home that's probably worth a fortune now and that's lovely, but in terms of actual assets to live off, you may be struggling a bit. So being able to invest across a variety of different things rather than just your home really pays off as you get closer to retirement. We've been talking about super a fair bit and, um, and I've mentioned the fact that there are always changes with super and quite a few coming into effect on 1st of July. Can you talk us through a couple of those? Yeah, look, there are, look, there are really three um, uh, or three or four really important changes. The first one has got a pretty good coverage, of course, is that the 
so-called uh, super guarantee levy, that's the amount that your employer uh, contributes uh, to superannuation as part of your wages and salaries, that increases from 9.5% to 10%. That's the first change, I think, in seven, eight years, I th just 2012. I, you'll probably, I think, was the last time, Gemma, but I'll stand corrected on that. So that, that's a big change. So um, that's going to help people over the long term in terms of uh, getting to that. Um, uh, the, the nest egg we'd recommend that most people look for in retirement. Now, the immediate impact um, just for one people who are salary sacrificing, and that's, of course, where you, on top of your um, uh, employer's 10%, um, you're putting additional money through your payroll into superannuation. It's worthwhile if you have a salary sacrifice arrangement, just making sure that, um, the, that, that how much you've got, you, you currently got in place uh, is still appropriate in the next financial year because the employer is going to be putting more in. Their, their contribution will go from 9.5% to 10%. That sort of is a segue into the second change in, in that the total amount that can go into uh, superannuation in what I call the, the concessional cap. We're also seeing an increase in that from 25,000 to 27,500. So that applies from the uh, 1st of July. And that's the first change in the concessional cap for many years. It's come as a result of essentially uh, CPI indexation. Now that 27,500 uh, is, is, is there are three sort of amounts that go into that. First of all, your employer's what will now be 10%. So if you're earning $100,000, your employer should be making 10% or $10,000 into superannuation. Secondly, it's uh, the any amount that you salary sacrifice on top of that. And that's where you, you make additional contributions through your salary or payroll uh, into super. And you effectively get the benefit from a sort of a pre-tax saving or in terms of uh, uh, a net tax saving from doing that. And then thirdly, it's any amount that you um, contribute uh, as part of a what are called a, a you make a personal tax deductible contribution to super. Typically, that's not done towards till, till the end of the year when you know what your balance is. But within that twenty seven and a half thousand, you've got to make sure you uh, you don't exceed the cap. So I think probably the action for most people, um, Gemma, is is that with. The employer putting more in from the 1st of July, if you have a salary sacrifice arrangement in place, just double check in terms of what you're doing and, and just to review whether, um, look at how your cash flow is as well, just what, what that should be for the next 12 months. So that's uh, that's the second change if, if I just keep going. Um, the third one is the so-called non-concessional cap. Now that's the amount of, of of contributions you can make from essentially your after-tax dollars, in other words, money that you've got outside super that you're putting in directly into the super system, that's being increased again with with uh, inflation from a hundred thousand dollars a year to a hundred and ten thousand uh, dollars, which I think is again it's a really important change and the first time that's been increased for for several years. So if you are sort of um, lucky enough and you've got a whole lot of some assets outside superannuation or you're potentially nearing retirement and you may want to get a big sum into superannuation, that amount's increased from 100,000 to 110,000. Uh, and with that, you may also be able to access the what we call the bring forward rule, which allows you to put in 
three years worth, so lots, effectively three lots of the $110,000 in one hit. So potentially you could now get $330,000 into super in one go, whereas before, before but go back to the 30th of June, you could only get $300,000 into super. So that's, a, that's really important and uh, can be important to people who are thinking about uh, coming into retirement and wanting to get as much as they can into superannuation while they can. So they're, they're the main changes. I want to talk about the self-managed super fund. The other thing I should just talk about is, again, because of indexation, the fourth change is that the amount you can have in the so-called pension phase of superannuation is also being increased due to indexation, and that goes up from $1.6 million to $1.7 million. So there's a huge number of changes, really, and they're kind of the big things as well. You know, when you go see your planner, particularly in that sort of five years before retirement or around retirement, those numbers are the ones that you are most focused on. You know, how much can I get in? Uh, you know, if you're accumulating and you've got a really good income, perhaps you're interested in this a little bit earlier as well. How much can I get in and how much can I transfer into the pension phase, the value of the pension phase? For those who haven't yet had to look at it, is that your earnings are tax-free, and that is pretty special. Uh, you are also, if you're over the age of sixty, able to make withdrawals tax-free. So all of this money that we encourage you to save in superannuation, the payoff is that you don't pay tax after you're sixty if you're in pension phase, and you're under that cap, which has just gone up to the one point seven million dollars. And if you're in a couple, you get two of them, so that's quite nice as well. Yeah, uh, so you're absolutely right, Gemma. And so, look, when when we uh, in our business see clients as um, you know, in our financial planning business, nine out of ten times, and I guess this is probably true with every financial planner, we look at ways that people can get more money into superannuation. So we look at their, you know, what they've got on the caps, how much room they've got, you know. Um, so it's really important because it's all driven essentially, as you say, by tax. That when the money is in the pension phase. The tax rate is that fantastic number of zero percent, and uh, with your with your franking credits rebated as well. Yeah. So it's um it's extraordinary just being in that situation. And I uh, don't get me wrong; I suspect by the time I retire, it will have changed because it's not terribly sustainable. But it's very very attractive if you're able to take advantage of it, and, yeah. uh, and, and we recommend people do. And there's nothing else, you know. I mean, sure, there's a minimal, the small tax free threshold and outside super but you know once you get over nineteen thousand two hundred dollars it's it's that tax at 19 percent it's not too hard far before you're getting you're potentially paying tax rates up to 47 percent so having a zero percent tax rate is is absolutely fantastic and that's why it's all about every person will tell you if you can maximize what you get into super so um you know and you know within reason but that that's essentially the strategy that uh you know, as I said, we just see with client after client. So understanding what are in those caps and what are the opportunities, uh, you know, is a pretty important thing to, uh, to to take hold of. So you also mentioned self-managed super funds. There's been a change that's gone through. It sounds very exciting. I'll be really interested to see how many people take it up. Do you want to talk us through it? Yeah, this actually, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Gemma, there was um, a whole lot of super legislation that... Uh, that went through Parliament, and it got a lot of headlines. It had mainly had to do with um, sort of some productivity measures and uh, effectively, you know, what happens uh, attaching a, a super fund when you first start as an employee. But they uh, 
superannuation is, is all codified in actual legislation. So to make any change to superannuation requires a change in the law. Uh, and there's usually a whole lot of bills which are pretty don't get a lot of prominence, and they're sitting on the back burner. And uh, and when they ever they get they get to talk about superannuation, often they bring all these bills on together. Now, one of the pieces of legislation that had been around for some time but hadn't actually gone through Parliament was a proposal to increase the number of the maximum number of members in a, in a self-managed super fund from four to six. Uh, and that was actually legislated. So uh, from the 1st of July, you can actually have six members in your self-managed super fund. Uh, there are also some easing in terms of some of the restrictions around, you know, uh, the rule around member directors and, uh, and member trustees, just to make that a little easier. Now, I don't think this is a big thing for most people, but I think a lot of families uh, might just reconsider um, as to who are the members in their fund, because the previous rule around four, in many cases, that made it pretty difficult. And, and maybe uh, if you're in a good situation, you've got uh, adult children, uh, you know, you, potentially you might like to have a think about, and you run your own self-managed super fund, uh, you might like to think about whether it makes sense to, to bring new members into your fund. So I don't think it's gonna be a huge thing, Gemma, but uh, I just think these are things to look at. And, and the reason that, why it may make sense is because a lot of the costs in running a self-managed super fund are fixed. Uh, in other words, you've got to have a pay a fee to the tax office as a levy. You've got to get the fund audited each year. You, you need an accountant. A lot of those costs are pretty fixed. So generally, you know, the more money that you can get into a self-managed super fund, the lower the sort of the overall cost, cost rate becomes or the cost as a percentage of the total assets is. And so uh, it might be an opportunity to, to think about bringing other family members into your self-managed super fund. Yeah, as I said, I'd be really interested. Over 80% of self-managed super funds are two-member funds and yep. they are almost exclusively uh, husband and wife or couples, uh, same-sex couples, absolutely fine, whatever your scenario may be. But, uh, you know, so we don't see a lot of scenarios where people bring their children in currently, but you wouldn't if you had three kids, right? So um, perhaps it well, means I'm that it accommodates exactly large families. I, oh, really? Yeah, so I've got um, I've got two of my daughters in, in our self-managed super fund and one not. And the, the reason the, my older daughter's not is she's a teacher and, uh, you know, they've got a pretty good scheme. So there wasn't as much reason for her to join it. But I'm in that scenario, so, uh, you know... Um, I, I, there, as you say, there aren't that many, but I don't. I think also, my experience dealing with clients is a lot of people just haven't thought about it um, as to what might be the upsides of both them and also their um, their children being in their funds. So, um, but anyhow, let, let, we'll see how it how it pans out. Yeah, you're right. I think also it's worth noting, you know, you may want your kids to join your fund when they're 18, and it's a nice way to engage them with. Uh, the fund and actual retirement savings when they're super young, but they can see it and it's very tangible in a way it might not be with a sort of broader public offer fund. And then if they want to roll it out and go somewhere else when they're 30, they can do that. They're not in it for life. They're not obligated yeah. to stay forever. So you can change uh, the structure and so on over time. So the thing about 30 June, uh, which is the day this is being published uh, and, and the week's, 
after is that people tend to scramble, depending on your situation, if you have to pay tax, you leave it as late as possible. But if you're getting a refund, you tend to scramble to get all your paperwork together and get it in and get it to the tax office. And often not so much paperwork anymore. They're very good at, uh, at scraping all your data and not, uh, not needing too much from you directly. And uh, then submitting that along with your deductible expenses and other deductions in order to get your tax refund as quickly as possible. And the benefit is you can see what your deductions are and you can also see what your income is in a much clearer way than you might sort of during the year where it's a bit all over the show. Are there things that people learn, do you think, in those few weeks where you're trying to get it all together, they go, oh, damn it, I really should do this better this year. What are the things they should be thinking about? Well, the first thing I do is I'd encourage most people to do it as soon as they can, because the, the facts are that about 80% of, of taxpayers get a refund each year. Uh, and this year, like last year, there's even more reason because we've had what's called the low and middle income tax offset. Uh, and in some cases, in many cases, that's been applied by your employers, but in other cases, it hasn't. So most taxpayers will probably end up with a refund. Uh, and, the, and I probably just explain why, Gemma, because... Um, the, the reality is that uh, that because we have a marginal sort of tax rate system, you tend to pay more tax than you need to. Your employer has to deduct essentially a, you know, at a the required the rates are set by the ATO, but it works out because of things like overtime and because the whole system, you know, the more dollars you earn, the higher your effective tax rate is. But in most cases, um, employers deduct more tax than actually is needed. And also most people end up with some deductions. So about 80% of taxpayers will end up with a refund. So you know, I've got, I can never understand why someone would leave their tax return, you know, till next year if they're going to get a refund. Why would why would you not get to do it as soon as you can come the start of the financial year? So that's the first thing I'd say. You're going to get money back. Why wouldn't you get it back as soon as you can? Um, of course, if you think you're going to pay tax, well, I guess you uh, you know, you'd probably leave it to the last available date but um, that's there's more reason to think about doing it this year early than, than not that's the first thing and secondly the other thing is again we've gone through a pretty unique year with, with COVID uh, and a lot of people have uh, have been working at home for parts of the year and this year again uh, as they did last year the, the tax office has got a, a special thing in place for working from home expenses now, for most of us, we really haven't been able to take advantage of that tax deduction because, uh, you know, well, sorry, until COVID, we, A, we didn't work from home and we didn't have the, you know, the, the separate home office and other things you needed to be able to claim under this deduction. But the ATA has put a provision in place that allows anyone to make a claim if they work from home that has a fixed rate of uh, 80 cents per hour that you work from home. And... Uh, you know, you don't have to um, provide substantiation in terms of receipts. You've just got to have had a re or kept a diary of, of the hours or the days that you work from home. Uh, and for many people, that's going to be a very automatic deduction. So if you've been working home, say, in the last 12 months, you know, a couple of days a week over that period, you know, you're going to be finding that you could potentially have a tax deduction of, you know, $11 or $12 uh, you know, per week, and you're going to get a for that period and multiply it by 48 and it's going to give you something like a deduction of about five or six hundred dollars if you're in that situation you won't need receipts 
you just got to have a diary to save the days that you work from home. So I think that's pretty easy. It's, you don't have to use that method. You can still go through the other traditional process, but uh, it's, it's a pretty unique situation. So you put those two things together with this lower middle income tax offset, the fact that most people tend to pay employers deduct at a slightly higher rate than, 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 is, than is actually needed, plus the fact that they're going to have deductions for uh, this automated data deduction because a lot of people have been working away from home. The reality is that most taxpayers will end up with a refund this year, and so you really, I would encourage you to get it done as soon as you can. I think that's great. And for anyone who was working at home 40 hours a week, and there will be plenty of people. <laughs> I've got a number of friends who... Um, I've said this many times before. One of the uh, one of the guys I work with who was like, "It's the introverts' time to shine." Uh, never wanted to return to the office and was having a great time working from home. Found himself far more productive, and you're looking at like fifteen hundred dollars as a straight up deduction without having to go through the terrible bother of validating a whole lot of expenses like how much you spend on the internet and apportioning it and all that kind of thing, which is a bother. Is there anything that people should be contemplating doing this year as in from the 1st of July to ensure when they get to 30 June next year they're not kicking themselves well look if you um if you are going to think you're going to be working from home permanently I think you really then need to look at the how you're doing it and getting a really good record of what the expenses are so the, the method I just explained is really a sort of a COVID shortcut that the ATO has put in place and it, and it may not continue this simplified method into the next year. And so if you are, you know, if, if a lot of working arrangements, as you say, Gemma, could change permanently where we are at a sort of a permanent, you know, potentially, you know, three days in the office and two days at home or whatever it is with your employer. If you are going to be working from home permanently, then you should, I would say, invest in just sort of understanding the rules about what are eligible expenses, what are the records you need to keep. Also making sure that you do have uh, the right structure and that includes a dedicated area uh, if you, in terms of a so-called home office, if you want to actually take advantage of the traditional way to claim those expenses. So you can go to the ATO website. The information is pretty good now on the ATO website. That's ato.gov.au just to understand what the rules are. That's one thing I'd be looking to do. Um, the other point, I guess, uh, generally when it comes to uh, taxation and expenses uh, is, is not dissimilar. That is, you know, records become really important. So um, uh, just set yourself up to, to keep the records and just get a sense when you go through and do your return and you work with your accountant or tax agent or do it yourself, have a look at what the things that you might have been able to claim last year were and just think about, well, are there going to be opportunities this year for, for you to claim that next tax year? I think that's good advice. I think there's many of us who get to the end of the year and go, ah, oh, if only, if only I'd done this. So one well, last a question. Very, a very simple thing. Just, I, I'm always amazed by people who don't keep records of their donations. You know, mm. any, any donation over $2 is tax deductible. So, uh, yeah, I see that in some of the people I work with and you say, well, yeah, I gave X, you know, $20 to the salvos or I did, uh, you know, someone asked me down here to, uh, you know, some environmental charity and I gave them $10 and they say, well, did you get a receipt? And the answer is no. Well, you know, you've got to keep records of these things uh, and it is deductible. So don't forget about it. 
I, I find with deductions, putting them on your credit card is quite helpful because yeah. uh, you can do a search at the end of the year and find all those little ones you might otherwise have forgotten. Uh, so it's quite it's quite a good way to do it. And I think everyone everyone will take credit card now. Uh, they will allow you to tap because the alternative of finding cash when you're walking down the street can be quite difficult. So one final question for you. We, we're seeing a real shift in investor behaviour this year, which I'm finding super interesting. Last year was really opportunistic buying, basically. If I had to sum up investor behaviour last year in two words, it was opportunistic buying and really aggressive buying. We had about an 80% buy uh, on of shares between uh, sort of February, March and uh, the end of June. So investors were spending 80% of their money <laughs> buying and uh and, and 20% of their trades were sales. That's and, and they were very that's right. very unusual. Yeah. And it paid off yep. so well, right? It was an amazing strategy. What we have seen through the beginning of uh 2021 is cash starting to climb again. So we're back at record highs for cash and we're seeing investors trimming the stocks they think have done really well, taking advantage of having held things for 12 months uh, so they're not paying full CGT, so they get the CGT discount, and also a real swing back to blue chips. Last year we were seeing a lot of buying in not highly speculative stuff but more growth companies, if I could call it that. This shift to blue chips, more traditional, more cash, any comments on that sort of behaviour in this environment? Yeah, look, I mean, I guess, um, I mean, I think in some ways that's uh, that's encouraging because I think investors are are looking at where we are, which is, you know, we are in the in the in a mature bull market, um, and this bull market, if you can look at last year as sort of like a blip, which which it turned out to be because it came back so quickly. Um, this bull market's now been in place for a long time. Um, it's, it's the best part of 12, 13 years, and I guess in the US it's even longer. So uh, I think it's, uh, you know, as the markets go higher, um, then it's understandable people looking just a little more security in terms of looking at companies that have... Um, you know, so-called blue chips, which have a much more solid and reliable income um, basis. So I guess that's one thing. I think, secondly, that... Uh, but you've got to say the momentum, um, particularly in the US and Australia, is still very strong. So don't forget, we're in a bull market now. We're going to get dips, but there's no sign of that trend having turned yet. And typically, markets just don't go up and suddenly turn down. It, it, it takes a while for markets... To, at ends of cycles to turn around. So I think you've still got to play the trend. Look, we, we have uh, we have seen signs of some, what uh, I think the, they used to call it irrational exuberance, <laughs> but, uh, and, but those need to be blown off. So probably more in the US than Australia, but something's got pretty frothy here in Australia as well in regard to some of the tech stocks. Uh, we've seen a lot of momentum buying momentum trading and um, look that's all great while you're on the right side of the momentum but it turns around pretty quickly I think that's probably a worrying sign is the momentum stuff so I can see I think investors being a little more prudent a little more selective about uh, where they're investing uh, is very healthy for the market but I would say that you can't ignore the fact that the trend is still up and 
although we know cash rates and the interest rates will go up at some stage, you know, even if the Reserve Bank governor is, you know, too optimistic, there's no prospect of this happening in the last 12 to 18 months. And while that's in train, it's very hard to find other assets to invest in. And with term deposit rates down to 0.3, 0.4%, there's a lot of money still going to flow into equities. So I think you stay with the trend, but investors are right to be a little more selective uh, in terms of uh, which stocks they uh they stay long with and and you know and if the stocks are underperforming or they've got doubts or they're overpriced then it's time to you know jettison those and and just think carefully about what they do want to invest in oh, it's a great summary and for anyone who's sort of trying to think through what we've been discussing there may be only one or two of the strategies we've talked about that may be relevant to you i think the value at this time of year is to sort of sit down and go have I got everything on paper? Can I see what I've got? Can I see where my money's going? And is there anything I can do better? And hopefully many of the things that Paul suggested will be uh, will be there as opportunities for you to take advantage of. Paul, you guys at Twitter produce heaps of great content for NabTrade where uh, anyone who's logged in regularly would have seen you and all the, uh, the great insights you produce for us. If people want more, where should they go? Yeah, look, the best thing is to go to switzer.com.au and um, we've got some great publications and uh, love dealing with uh, with investors and clients. So um, switzer.com.au. Paul Rickard from the Switzer Group, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jim. It's been a great, my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We've received some fantastic feedback. We love getting your questions and ideas for future topics. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.